there, this is Chris Hopkins here on 17 Minutes of Science. In this show, we explore the world of science and how it affects the starting academic to the seasoned professional. Today, we have a special guest. Uh, his name is Tom Cofield from the Mayo Clinic. Hi, Tom, how are you doing? Hey. Uh, a little intro on Tom. Uh, Tom Cofield is, you know, he's an associate professor of neuroscience at the Mayo Clinic. And additionally, he's a senior associate a consultant in over half a dozen groups at Mayo. These are areas that range from cancer to neurosurgery to genomics. And this gives him a wide breadth of experience uh, and areas of expertise. For us, Tom has been a longstanding collaborator and we've done uh, some quite exciting work together with animal models to help understand disease, such as for instance, the DIRK1A gene and its involvement in intellectual disability. And you know, with 17 minutes of science here, uh, we've got you know a very short brief amount of time to cover a lot of questions. So let's jump right in. And you know, as Tom, as you know, we've been working together on projects that range from COVID-19 to rare disease. And a theme that keeps popping up is protein deficiencies. You know, you're an expert in molecular dynamic simulations, uh, which your team uses to model therapies of, of disease uh, gene targets. Um, perhaps you could, could you tell us some insights on how you use computer models to help us understand disease biology? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, so going back to the 2000s, when I was at Georgia Tech as a grad student, we were studying uh, the use of simulations to, to study the behavior of proteins and nucleic acid structures. And at the time I was uh, undertaking an endeavor to model the ribosome, which uh, is a very large structure, as you know and has proteins and ribonucleic uh, acids in it. So uh, after that, I went and did a, a couple industry postdocs and then came to Mayo Clinic. And um, the cool thing about coming to Mayo Clinic was that they have a wealth of targets that their scientists are identifying here that are new and novel targets. They may have a therapeutic or drug um, you know, utility in the treatment of rare uh, diseases like you're interested in, but also a host of other diseases. And so what we do with the molecular dynamics simulations, which is just one particular kind of simulation, we have lots of different kinds of simulations we can do, but the molecular dynamics allows us to mimic what the protein is actually doing inside the cell. And the, the protein is encapsulated in a body of water and physiological milieu that mimics what the, the protein's encountering inside the cell. And so we can model both, uh, the normal sequence, what we consider the wild type sequence, as well as these pathogenic variants that we obtain when we do the genome sequencing from the patient data of the patient that's presenting with a disease where we wanna understand what's causing their disease. So we identify their genetic variation in that, that protein sequence that's encoded. And we, we can study the behavior of how the, the pathogenic uh, mutant is in the patient that's affected with the disease versus the healthy patient with the normal wild type protein. And we, we, we actually watch the behavior of the protein on a time scale that is, um, you have to think in the terms of uh, Newton's equations and things like that, we're integrating time uh, for these little uh, nanoscopic things. So microseconds are very long time scales that we study inside the, the simulation and that, that can divine a lot of really powerful information about the behavior. So there's a structure, function relationship that tells us about the behavior. And if we can correlate that to observe phenotypic things like you guys do in your lab, then we, we, we get the power of that complexity that we can then use to drive forward for uh, drug screening. So that's our ultimate purpose is see if we can screen 
new drugs based on comparisons of what we're seeing in these uh, different systems. Okay, well, uh, thanks for that, that introduction on, on how sort of uh, molecular dynamics is, is used. Um, and, 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 you know, some of the things that, as I understand, we, you know, we've been working on is, is, to, is to even dock small molecules into these uh, patient uh, uh, mimicking structures. So, so the variant that's seen in the patient is put into the, the molecule. You, you, you use their dynamics to sort of understand the stability, right? And then, and then we can use, uh, uh, take libraries, in silico libraries, and pass them across, right? And, absolutely, and absolutely. You've absolutely. done that a bunch, and you've you've gotten. What is it? What what is the? You you have it must be about a dozen proteins that are sort of now have have uh, moved along towards the development pipeline and are either at clinic or approaching clinic. What, what kind of proteins are, are have you have you sort of been able to sort of see with this kind of technique that are now potential new therapeutics for patients? Absolutely. So we we've worked on of course cancer biology targets. Uh, neurodegeneration targets, uh, metabolic disease targets, and um, some other uh, uh, developmental related uh, disease targets. But um, to name um, metabolic, one would be a SIM1 uh, protein, SIM1, um, and that has developmental, developmental and metabolic uh, implications. And that was a collaboration with uh, uh, Dr. Murray Whitelaw in the Australia at the University of Adelaide. He's, he, he's an expert in a SIM1 protein. Um, and then there's, there, you know, with the cancer biology one, there's a lot of those that have turned into um, uh, patents that have led to startups. Uh, so I can think of SCD1, sterile-CoA desaturase 1. We've identified uh, novel drugs for that. That was originally a metabolic target and other pharma were interested in that banded due to some uh, side effects, minor side effects related to um, dry eye and spermatogenesis that uh, is completely reversible upon cessation of the, the inhibitor. Interestingly, it's, it's implicated in uh, ER stress. So, so we were able to use that for cancers related to uh, um, pentraxins. So there's an upregulation of pentraxins in these uh, renal cell carcinomas. So SCD1 was a, also an upregulated target that we were able to inhibit and that induces ER stress and then the cell death pathway is triggered. And it, it, it actually works really great in combination with some other known um, cancer therapies. So, so there's a, an excellent PDX model we did in mice and then we were able to move that forward into uh, uh, an NIH uh, small business grant and, and a cooperative thing with another uh, company. So that, that, that's an example. And there's a bunch of others, like you said, well, you, you mentioned uh, the combination, and that leads into one of the other questions I want to talk to you about. You know, we, we recently published a paper together um, on multi-drug targeting in COVID-19. Um, and, you know, I would love to tell you, maybe you could elucidate a little bit more about how this, you know, how a multi-drugging strategy sort of works, you know, and, and how it can be useful in, in uh, you know, battling evolving diseases such as cancer and, uh, and, and the next uh, pandemic, the next virus that comes along, how, how are we gonna use multi-drug therapies? What, what, what's sort of the advantage of, of, that you've seen? Right? You, know, you mentioned that you had a, a multi-drug there. What, what is it about the multi-drugging that is, is useful? Sure, so in the case of SARS-CoV-2, uh, uh, COVID-19, uh, mm -hmm. you and I have been collaborating on that for over a year. And internally uh, with uh, Mayo and Rochester, uh, Hideki Ibahara has a what we call a BSL-3 facility that allows him to screen uh, 
compounds and drugs in a secure environment with the live virus. And doing that, we were able to actually screen 25 of my predictions out oh. of, uh, we generated a pool of about 800. And, and he and I recently published a paper on this screening of those 25. Um, and, and so we found three that were, so our, our hit rate of success is 12% in its initial, initial batch, which is pretty good. Um, if you expand that out to the, the full 350, we would expect maybe 42 positive hits. So we could use that uh, data, uh, not to get technical, but you take the medicinal chemistry information from the hits uh, that have various activities and you can you know, try and structurally elucidate new compounds that might have better activity. Taking a step back from that, these hits we identified were really interesting because um, with the multi-drug approach, what we're trying to do is look at how the virus makes itself present to the human cell. And there's, uh, as you know, you, you made that beautiful figure. There's, uh, the first thing is there has to be the ACE2 receptor binding, which is what all the, the um, current drugs and vaccines are going after is, is preventing the virus from binding on the receptor. But even after that, there's the viral entry where it has to engage in uh, to the endosome to get into the early fusion, we call it, through other enzymes that are native to the, the human cell like Tempris 2 and the cathepsins. And then once the virus is in there, it will actually hijack the, the replication machinery of the host cell to make its protein mpro uh, and other proteins so that it can replicate itself and bud out of the cell and, and, and proliferate and infect other cells. So our, our plan, our multi-drug plan was, what if we introduce drugs that create roadblocks at each of these steps so that the cell has multiple chance to succeed in fighting off the virus? And that combination of those different drugs would then uh, increase, perhaps not synergistically, but maybe synergistically, at least additively preventing the, um, the virus from proliferating inside the cell. So related to that, we generated a, a library of 30 million compounds that uh, are feasible to synthesize really quick. And we screened all of those on uh, these different targets. We have a, a crystallographer, uh, Dr. Yvette Radisky, who works with us. And she, she was able to do some early protein purification for uh, Tempris 2. And um, they were working on uh, MPRO. But there is a crystal structure out there published for that. And we were able to take, as you mentioned, you mentioned docking. So we do an in silico screening where we take these 30 million compounds. And I know Zoom won't allow you to see my hand very well, but you could think of it like a lock and key. And we, we, we bring in the inventory of each compound really fast, you know, because it's a computer and we could do millions of these on each enzyme. And the thing about my lab that's special and maybe not so special, but we look at the dynamics of the protein, which is, is moving around dynamically. It's not a static rigid structure. So we identify how well the drug sticks too. So we, when we identified the best ones, we did simulations to see if, do the drugs stick or do they fall off? And that relates back to the kinetics and, and that's another topic in um, drug design, but what are the kinetics of the drug with the enzyme? Because you want optimal kinetics so that the, the drug binding efficiency is good. You want specificity so that the drug is specific for that target and other, other, not other things that will make the cell sick. So we did some um, toxicity assessment um, and then we also did um, uh, the screening in the live virus with Hideki that identified that those were working in uh, vero uh, human cells that uh, were infected with the virus. 
Um, so we need to follow up with that and go further and, and see where we can go with that. But I, 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 maybe maybe that's too much or not enough. I don't know. What you're no, well, thank you. And, and uh, you know, the the that is a very topical subject matter uh, dealing with the COVID nineteen and 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 then some of the concepts towards how we might leverage on that towards the next pandemic that's coming along. But this, I, I want to take sort of the 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 learnings from that, or even, uh, the translatability of that to something else you've been doing with the Mayo Clinic. You're involved with the Center for Individualized Medicine. Um, you know, and, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about how, how you're involved with that, how that actually touches the patients, you know, how, how does that impact the patients, you know, what, what are you doing at the Center of Individualized Medicine to make a difference in these patients' lives? Yeah, so that's part of the genomic odyssey. Um, so at Mayo Clinic, um, it, I'll just do a scenario. The, a patient comes in who is, you know, referred in uh, for their disorder, and they go Maybe it's a GI issue, so they go see a GI doctor, and perhaps the you know the the he has his rubric of of things that he's looking for, and the patient's symptoms, and then the the blood work and the other tests they do and the scans don't necessarily uh, abide by what's in the rubric. So there's a confusion over what the disease etiology is. So they might get referred at that point to um, Klaus, Dr. Klaus Warango, who is. Uh, the clinical genomicist uh, on, on site here at uh, Mayo Clinic, Florida. And he might send them out to get their genome sequenced. Uh, and it might be a, a particular subset of their uh, genome or it might be the whole genome. And mm -hmm. and because uh, there are different panels you can do. If it's heart related, they might do a heart related panel. Could be they do the mm -hmm. whole genome. Then um, at, at that point, we'll data mine through their genome looking for variants and studying them. And so sometimes a variant will pop up because it'll be a known pathogenic variant. And so I should say, well, what are these variants? Well, the, the variant is, as I mentioned earlier, um, we all have our unique genetic code and there is uh, variation within that. Not everybody's identical, we would all be clones. So the, the variation allows us to have our differences and, and, and that's actually healthy. But sometimes you might have a, um, a variant that is what we call pathogenic disease causing. So, so that would be the introduction. And it doesn't have to be encoded in a, in a missense variant. It could be somewhere outside the gene that's affecting the way it's even translated or transcribed. I focus on translated proteins. So I look at the missense variants, which are within the protein. And if the missense variant within the protein causes an anomaly in the shape of the protein, uh, then it could cause an anomaly in the way it behaves. And uh, I like to quote Richard Feynman, who was a, a famous physicist from the Manhattan Project and other uh, uh, particle physics things, but he was interested in biophysics. And when we study these, these proteins, we're, we're uh, as he says, we're looking at the wiggling and jiggling of their motions to understand their behavior. And so you, you use the simulation to look at that change in that wiggling and jiggling between the wild type and the pathogenic one. And you can uh, parse out the effect of these pathogenic variants. And then there's other methods we do, which look at energetics. So there's a, a thing called Gibbs free energy. So we'll look at the entropy and the enthalpy in the system. And we'll combine that with uh, other machine learning techniques we have to determine if we suspect that the protein is pathogenic. So my role related to SIM is, um, they may come to me with a patient who's got 50 genes that they've narrowed it down to and uh, they know a few of these are interesting. So they asked me if I could go in and, and examine these and come up with a rationale behind that um, for it being pathogenic. And we did have a really interesting one I, I could mention 
Um, okay, I, great. We have, we have about oh, a minute oh, left. So that sorry, perfect, sorry. perfect timing. So go sorry. through that one. Go ahead. Oh, just with the patient, um, um, they were having a, a, a variant that was causing a mutation that was not where the drug was binding. So people were confused why the drug wasn't having an effect. But when we did the study for the correlated motion in the protein with uh, Matt Coben, who's a, a research scientist in my lab, we noticed that there was a propagation of, of a, a, you could think of it as a distortion in the shape of the protein that was, even though it was far away, it was changing the shape of the binding pocket and preventing the drug from binding. So they were able to switch the therapy in that case to a different drug that would work through a different pathway because the drug they were using for that pathway was never going to work. Oh, wow. That, that, that's that's a, a nice story. Basically, using in silico approach to, to remodel the way you are approaching that, that current therapy with a patient and find a more successful therapy. Well, that about wraps up our time here. We've burned up 17 minutes. I told you, Tom, it would go it fast. It goes quick. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I appreciate everybody in the audience. Uh, I see we don't have any questions, but if you have any questions in the audience, please feel free to uh, drop one in the chat and, uh, and when we can address it at a later time point. Tom, thank you so much for speaking with us today. I appreciate your, 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 your presentation and a description of how your work goes at the Mayo. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you.